Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Elaine Boozler's comedy career began by working the door at the original Improvisation Club in New York City in the 1970s. For over 40 years, she has appeared on seemingly every talk show ever on TV, has written and starred in five of her own one-hour Showtime stand-up specials, and written and directed two movies for Cinemax. She self-financed that first special, 1985's Party of One, because TV networks would not let a female stand-up have her own special. In 1993, Boozler was only the second woman to perform at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and the first to be televised live on C-SPAN. She's now putting out a box set, Elaine Boozler Timeless, which includes four of her iconic specials, plus a brand new CD of stand-up. A portion of the proceeds will benefit Tales of Joy, the animal rescue nonprofit she founded in 2001. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! So, Elaine Boozler, thank you for for finally sitting down with me. Wait, are we on? I believe so, You know, yeah. I've, I've sat down with you before, but we didn't do this. No. We just sat. We just sat. Yeah, we just we, sat. We were not recording. Did we feed squirrels or something when we were sitting? No. We sat in Brooklyn. We sat in Brooklyn, we and sat, we sat in the East Village. Sat in the East Village, yes. but now we're sitting in the East Village again and talking. We're talking. talking. Oh, my God. You know, coming into this building, there were so many uh, Thai menus downstairs, and I thought, times have changed so much, because <laughs> when I was a boy, there were Chinese menus filling up the... Now, now they're Thai. Mm. Yeah. They'll be uh, borscht next year, <laughs> unfortunately. So, right. Elaine, yes. um, last things first... I've been dying to ask you this question. Uh-oh. That's not good. No. I'm already nervous. Uh, when was the last time you let anybody see you sweat? Uh, on the way up. Oh. Yeah, on the way up. Are you kidding? <laughs> I only came this week for the Humidity Festival, and I have not been disappointed. There was something, even like even for decades before I met you in person, your, your TV ad... Uh-huh. For a dry idea, like stuck with me. Yeah, everybody. For years, people were screaming in the airport, "Hey, don't let him see you sweat!" I yeah. thought, "Oh God, thank God I didn't do a Summer's Eve commercial." <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have been too cliche for a uh, you think for a girl for female comedian. Yeah. Maybe I should have done a jock instead of commercial. instead of a comedian who's a human being who just happens to have lady parts. <laughs> lady parts. Lady parts. You know, I would. I I wasn't out for commercials, but I I had been at it for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And when they asked me, I said no a million times. And what was interesting, they just wanted to find a good comedian. So there are a million people who would have done it. But I'm the only one who kept saying no. And that's what happens. It's like dating. I kid you not. Business is always like dating. Hmm. They went, why is she saying no? She must be really good if she doesn't want to do this. And everyone said no. I mean, everyone said yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And they never cast it. And finally, they said, what? What will it take? And I said, I don't know. What are you doing? And they said, look, you don't have to hold the product. You don't have to appear with the product. We just want you to be funny, and we'll take it from there with the product. Nothing, And it'll say comedian Elaine Boozler under mm-hmm. comedian. And I said, well, it has to say comedian, number mm-hmm. one, not comedian. Oh. And um, But if you just have my name under and I'm funny, thank you for that. And uh, a little crack I had delivered from yeah. the uh, guy in the corner. Um <laughs> Times haven't changed that much. No, they haven't changed. Actually, nothing changes <laughs> ever. 
<laughs> we're almost up to the Me Three movement. I'm so old, I was in the Me One movement. Me Two will pass. Well, we'll, we will get to that. We'll get to Me Three in 10 years when nothing changes anyway. We'll get um, to those questions soon enough. Oh, okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to <laughs> jump the shark. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. A little omen. Chekhov's gun. There you go. Oh, <laughs> if it's on the wall, it'll yes. be fired in the second act. <laughs> um, okay. So how many people interested that? Everyone. Um, anyway, so they just said your name, mm-hmm. you'd be funny, and we'll advertise the product. And Andy Kaufman had just died, and I was just hysterically in mourning and didn't know what to do, where to go. Um, and I thought, well, uh, okay, so this will be a thing. And, you know, it was a wonderful thing to have done. So not selling cigarettes, clearly. And uh, it was okay. And it did change things a lot. And it was really nice. Um, they did say comedian, which was a mm-hmm. great thing instead of comedian. And that was a big fight. And you know what? They renew- They had uh, the three nevers of. They had Donna Karen do fashion. They had me do comedy. They had chefs. They had actors. It ran for about three years. And then they paid me again to do still for magazines. Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, In the fourth year, they decided to do one huge expensive buy, and it was the seventh game of the World Series. And they (laughs) tested all the commercials to see which would play best, Mm -hmm. you know, and they were really going for the actor, obviously, baseball. And I had no idea this had happened. So I'm eating pizza with my boyfriend sitting on the floor. I'm eating pizza on the coffee table. And we're looking down, you know, World Series. And I hear my voice. And he said, what? I said, nothing. And we look. And it's me. And he went, oh, my God. And so I called the account uh, lady that I knew. And I said, how did that happen? She said, you know, we found out that your commercial tested best among men because they recognized how difficult it was for you to be in their field. And they still liked you. And they said, well, that's the story of my career. (laughs) Isn't it, though? Yeah. So it was kind of very cool to be uh, on the World Series that way. Okay. So your story inspires a couple of uh, tangential questions. One, was that ad campaign... Did that give you more status than any of your Showtime specials? Oh, God, no. It was a commercial, but it just made me more known to people in the airport. Right. You know? Okay. So it was just, uh, just on a generic level. Didn't didn't make you more famous famous or... or, or... Well, sure. I think it upped my, my uh, uh, recognizability quotient, made mm-hmm. me a little better known. There, those things are hard to gauge for the most part, but it certainly was a, was a good thing to do. I mean, I wasn't holding, uh, put in, putting on deodorant. I was just sitting there making it funny. And here's another interesting thing, and you have to stick to your guns in life if you know your particular area. They wrote it, and when they write something, any commercial, anywhere, ever, there's so much market research that you can't even breathe between words <laughs> that they're not agreeing for you to breathe in between. It's so careful. So they give me the spot Mm -hmm. and I say, look, the whole point of using a comedian is to make sure you get a little laugh in the commercial. There's nothing funny here. Why would you want a comedian to to do a spot if people aren't going to smile? You know, it has to be funny. And they said, this is tested, blah, blah, blah. This is it. I said, okay, well, let's uh, let's make a deal. I will do this until the cows come home, until you've gotten the spot you've wanted. Then can we please do a few my way? And of course, you choose. It's your money. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was mine. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, you have to. Oh, wait, I never understand interviews or movies with comedians. Oh, my phone's going to make noise. I never understand that, that are so serious that nothing's funny. I mean, people are only listening because it's a comedian. They're hoping to get entertained. Exactly. So it should be funny. But did you find, you know, talking about how you 
you got the the campaign because you kept saying no. Yeah. Did you find it's that? It's also how I've had sex my whole life. I was going to, well, that was my other question. Oh, Is yeah. It, was that your relationships and? Everything. Everything. Listen, all anybody cares about is the chase. Nobody cares once they've got you. Mm-hmm. Agents, managers, men, possibly women. I don't know. But once once you're there, nobody pays attention. I was watching this afternoon to prepare. I was watching a, a video uh, of you with Andy where He's interviewing you <laughs> the high desk. from the high desk, <laughs> but the interview is all about how you left him for this other guy <laughs> and how uncomfortable it made Andy. I think that clip makes the world uncomfortable, which <laughs> means my job is done right. here. Yeah. When you see comedians now doing, um, for lack of a better term, performance art, mm-hmm. do you feel that they that they've they've gotten the lesson that Andy was teaching, or that they're just trying to do knockoff stuff. Well, um, per- comedians who do performance art, like Sasha, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Bobcat and people like that, um, they're great in their own way. No one has touched Andy Kaufman. In not, I'm not saying as far as greatness or funniness. I'm saying as in the sensibility and the result that he brought. Nobody works on that plane. He meditated TM for... 20 years, and he really was had elevated to another plane of consciousness and ability. And nobody is able to bring an audience or, or even be on stage the way he was. When I, you mentioned, I think before we started, that I had hosted the Andy Kaufman Awards last year. Right before we were on there, yeah. Yeah, and I was kind of, you know, saddened but not surprised that every single person uh, who was in them mm-hmm. had no idea what Andy was about. You know, you had guys up there in their in- underwear slathering cooked chicken on their bodies and putting it in their shorts. Nobody knew it. I mean, it's so far away, you know, and I was very kind about it because it's unless you were there, you really don't know. But or if you watch his stuff, you might know, but it doesn't matter. It's like me watching, you know, Balanchine. I still can't jump that high, even if I understand it. Andy was Andy and that will never be touched. It just won't. And not. I'm not being idealistic because I love him so much. I'm telling you that what he brought and I can tell you some of what it is, but nobody has that and nobody gets that and and nobody I mean I'd be stunned if somebody got there. Well, how true is the story that that he got you from working the door at the improv to on stage at the improv? He didn't get me on stage, he got me to stop singing and to concentrate on comedy okay. at the improv. In 73, when the improv was just a hole in the wall in Hell's Kitchen, and yeah. nobody came. And every night I was afraid it would close because there were only three Japanese tourists who didn't speak English and I <laughs> needed the job. Um, yeah, he saw well, that's when sing- singing helps. Yeah, Because the does. Japanese will just smile and go. Well, it would help if you were a good singer. <laughs> oh, you... <laughs> I used to... Oh, you were trained. You went to no, all professional those, school. That's all that. lies. That's oh. all... You know how, how, like, my whole bio is all just mm-hmm. stories, then none of it... It's because when I was a little girl, maybe I was... 10, mm-hmm. I, I was sick on the couch with the cold, so home from school, and I watched the Dizzy Dean story. And he's doing all these interviews, and wife says, but hon, how come you keep telling him all different stories? And he said, well, baby, they all want exclusive interviews. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's great. I mean, I was 10. I never thought anybody would ever be interviewing me. But so I just, you know, I know. I, well, yeah. That's one thing that's true now, even more with the, with the internet, is everybody wants to say that they have an exclusive Yes. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, I do, right? <laughs> yes, you do. This is you telling it right now. But <laughs> I think I am the least known 
public person. No one knows my story or my past or my childhood. It's I've never bled on my audience. I only want them to see me and immediately smile. I'm mm. not Roseanne. I was molested. I mean, if I told you my story, you'd never laugh at me again. So nobody knows it and no one will ever know it. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> Is that why you started t- uh, Tales of Joy? I think all rescuers came from a place of such despair and terror and helplessness and hopelessness that every single day, I mean, we have saved literally tens of thousands of animals. Every time I save an animal, I have healed myself a little bit. I've rescued myself a little bit from my, you know, childhood and my Mm. future of nothing. And I really do believe that most rescuers or many have, you know, it's really a self-healing thing and they did not come from a very joyful place. So that's definitely more true than the, the sad clown stereotype. Yeah, you know, I always balk at that. I mean... Don't they say dentists have the highest suicide rate? So, you know, if that's true, then there's probably more depressed dentists. And I'm sure as many bankers kill themselves. It's just that they're not expected to be funny. So people take it harder with comics. But I don't think that we kill ourselves more or we're more depressed. People are just focusing the spotlight on looking at us. I think every profession has its its, its percentage of, you know, failure and unhappiness. And, you know, ours is more public, but I don't think it's it's more. I think people focus focus on it because when it happens it's it's such an extreme yes and it's not what you're expecting it's like seeing you know angelina jolie without makeup it's like what you're the most beautiful woman in the world go home put it on you know (laughs) we we want you i'm sure she's gorgeous without yeah i would rather see her without makeup than kiss without makeup i'd rather see her without makeup than anyone in the world (laughs) with makeup because that's how gorgeous she is so kiss without makeup kiss without makeup is just you know leonard cohen I have to tell you, I was sitting next to Gene Simmons' wife, mm-hmm. she, you know, Shannon Tweed. Oh, right. She's so wonderful. So we were at the ha- same hairdresser in L.A. So we're sitting there, and they have one of the TV shows on, and the host had someone on who had just cloned her dog for $50,000. So everyone's going, oh, my God, that's so much money, blah, blah, blah. And we're watching, and I say, very innocently, well, I don't know. I mean, people spend $50,000 on a piece of jewelry, and Shannon Tweed turns to me and says, if a man gave me a ring that was $50,000, I'd hit him over the head with a hammer. <laughs> and I thought, must be nice to be you. <laughs> what a nice rarefied, rarefied air to be in. It was funny and she's lovely, but I get it. You know, her right. world is so much higher than ours. It's great. Mm. But enough about her. Oh, there's so are many- you going to sit with down, down with her as well? No. no. Why not? <laughs> Stand up with her. Sit down with her. She's so beautiful. Uh, there, there are so many things. I think it's so great that your box set is coming out now. Oh, thank because, you. because we need it. Because fortunately or unfortunately, so many things in your story are timeless. Thank the you. The fact. Well, I mean, let's just start with the fact that you self-financed and owned your own stand-up special in 1985. And now I own them all, which is why they never came out before. But that's something that now. Some 43 years later, comedians are just now starting to realize the importance of owning their product online. Well, 
Here's the thing. In 85, when everybody was doing their specials, you got hired. So you got paid a fee. HBO, Mm -hmm. Showtime, that's all there was pretty much. They owned the shows, which is why it goes on forever. Because nobody wanted me at all ever. When I did my first one, I was lucky enough to meet an amazing uh, producer, director, cameraman, gaffer, Jack of all trades in the movies named Steve Gerbson. And he said, we can do this together, but you're going to have to learn how to produce because we can't hire a lot of people. And he said, what's, you know, I didn't have a credit card. I was in a little apartment in uh, uh, South LA. He said, "What? What's your savings like?" And I, you know, it was three to four figures. It was very little. He said, "Okay, I, I know everyone in New York. Here's what we'll do: we will either tell them they can have a little bit of money and get paid, mm-hmm. or we can say defer when it's sold. We'll pay you your full fee." And everyone said, "Oh, Elaine Boozer, my God, uh, we'll defer. We know this is this is going to sell." And of mm-hmm. course, it didn't for a full year. Just ridiculous. So much personal hatred from the men who didn't want the world to change. You know, the audience was ready from day one. My peers were ready from day one. The guys were like the first family I ever had and so much love, all of them. Richard Belzer and Freddie Prince and Andy Kaufman and Richard Lewis and Jimmy Walker and even Richard Pryor and Lily. I mean, it was like, wow, this I'm home. I know what it means. And, um, and you even, even mentioned the two people who were in your intro. Uh, oh, Richard and Jay? No. Which intro? <laughs> the the the, first the party one yeah oh yeah of course it was amazing Letterman David Letterman yeah. and Bill Cosby Bill Cosby right I mean I have to tell you he was so good to me for all these years that it's the whole thing's a heartbreak for the whole world yeah. you know it's just there's nothing good to say about it and nothing funny for me you know um, the guy was just great to me and I just feel so bad for everyone that had to suffer. Um, But anyway, in those years, you know, they wouldn't buy me. No one wants to see a woman do an hour. That's all they kept saying. And I said, really? Because I do two and a half hours on the road. Here's my reviews. They say this is the funniest, longest show we've ever seen. And when I go to a club every week, they say, oh, thank God we're going to make our money back. You're here. And they had had the guy you gave a special to, you know, the week before me. Stop it already. No one wants to see a woman do an hour. I said, I just can't take it anymore. So I was getting nowhere, playing the same clubs over and over again. No more money. Everyone's moving up. And so Steve Gerbson said, we're going to do this. So we did the special. He said, but look, they've already proven they don't want you. We've got to get people they want. So there was no faxing. I mean, there was nothing in those days. I knew Cosby was in Vegas. I sent him a FedEx. I knew he knew me. I would pass Mm -hmm. him on the road. I'd be with Helen Reddy, and he'd be following us. He'd go, I love that new joke. And I went, how does he even know that? I mean, he just, you know, was a fan. So I FedEx him, and I tell my friends what I did, and they all say, you just humiliated yourself. You sent Bill Cosby a FedEx asking him to be on your cable special? His show is number one. He just right. brought back comedy to the right. world. He, he, Sitcom. Are right, you That was insane? the first year of the Cosby show. Yeah. It, it, he's number one. He's on the cover of mm-hmm. Time and Newsweek and the New York Times. I mean, it was like, you know, me saying to Albert Einstein, could you help me with my math homework? Literally. So I send the FedEx the next day in the afternoon, his assistant calls and she says, I'll always remember the words, more than pleased to do this for you. So, hello, what a, that was pretty generous. Um, And then Letterman had never stepped outside his own show. He was burning up the airwaves. He did it. Dr. Ruth, her first big year as a star, she did it. And then, of course, the hip ones, you know, Brother Theodore, who's Mm -hmm. one of the loves of my life in the old days. And you might remember him on the early Letterman show. And, of course, Larry Bud Melman from, and we all did it. And Tom Waits, my good friend, gave me his music, New Coat of Paint put together the greatest show, 12 years of honed material. Every joke was a diamond on black velvet, you know. Took it up there. They went, nah, 
I said, and my boyfriend, who I had always said they hated me just because I'm alive, and he went, you're crazy, stop it. When we came home and he realized I was, he said, you are right, they, it's personal. I, he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't go anywhere. So I'm going to go on the road for one more year so I can pay everyone, and then we're quitting. And he said, okay, well, let's go up to San Francisco. I'll teach film. You make wind chimes, whatever you want to do. <laughs> so <laughs> I was kind of looking forward to it. <laughs> anyway, the great saying is if someone in TV doesn't like you, wait five minutes. I had to wait a year, but of course, these guys left. New young hip guys came in, bought the show, uh, which I owned, so I licensed the show to them. And then they said three more specials, and I said, fine, I will license these shows to you. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, no, we own everything. I said, oh, no, you don't. This is the price everybody pays for never wanting me. This is the only way you're going to get me. And so I licensed the shows. Then HBO begged me to come over and I said, nope. And they said, well, how about Cinemax? Do our cinema? I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to write and direct a couple of movies. And they said, okay, but you can't work for Showtime. I said, listen to me. You turned me down for five fucking years, you idiots. So here's the deal. I work for everybody. You want Want this? That's how you get it. So I own everything, and now I'm releasing everything. How how long did it take you to make your money back? Well, as soon as it sold, I mean, all literally, I had ten thousand dollars in savings, so that was gone the first day. Mm -hmm. um, the ch amount of checks we wrote, if I remember correctly, was a little bit over a hundred thousand dollars. We wrote those checks to everyone who had worked on the show. It was somewhere between a hundred and. I want to say 200, but it was not that much. Anyway, we got the same phone call from everyone. We've never been paid on the back end by anyone after a year ever. And we said, we want to work with you again, and we're good people. And we always kept the same crew. If you look at the credits, you know, we really are honorable. And we paid everyone. And, you know, it it was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm still kind of surprised that, like, even – you know, from my perspective as a as a straight white male, I I'm trying to picture. Wait a minute, I had no idea. Uh, yeah, I have but to I'm leave. Trying to, I'm, I'm trying, going. I'm trying to picture the the chauvinists of the '80s in like. Well, I'll start uh, with Johnny Carson. But I'm but but I have a hard time like seeing them in. Like even if you just show them the intro and it's got Letterman and Cosby, that, that's, that, that's not believe. enough. Well, yeah, to, to they should have just bought it. that and cut me out. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, for years I was saying to my boyfriend, here's you know, a five minute interstitial. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Introducing. Hey, Elaine rain Boozler. delay. Throw uh, that opening on. It's a rain <laughs> delay. Um, my boyfriend for years, I said, you don't. they hate me for existing. The fact that I speak, they just hate my being. And he said, you have to stop this. You sound insane. And I said, I've been doing this for 12 years. I know my job is to read the audience and who I'm talking to. And when they said no, with all that star power, that was yeah. number one all over the country. And here are these cable special, uh, stations trying to establish themselves, the fact that they said no, it, it was like, your Hitler will never touch you. And he went, you are correct. I don't, well, I've learned something. I said, you have no idea what I've been through for 12 years. So, and yet, it's, of course, my peers and the comedians and the audience, I knew I was right. right. Because if everyone hated me, then I would go, yeah, I've, I'm, I've made a mistake. But it was only the old guys in the business. As I used to joke, you know, if you could get laid without paying for it, you'd understand my work. <laughs> um, you know, it's just the business who, you know, holding back the flood of change. You can't mm -hmm. change. You can't come in here. And I, I'm just a human being trapped in a woman's body. I have no agenda. I don't preach. I talk to men and women. I'm not, you know, strident. I'm not 
I'm just talking. What? And and of course, when HBO was you know turned me down for years, and then the day after the New York Times reviewed Party of One. Uh, Stephen Holden, the most okay. the review you would write yourself. It was mm-hmm. so beautiful. What? Where has this been for so long? A human being standing there speaking without flaying herself for our amusement. Well, it was everything you wish they would get. For, you know, and he got it. And within a week, HBO announced Women of the Night. Uh, every Friday night, four women will do 15 minutes each and share an hour. And I said, yeah, because now there's a lot of women comedians around. They never ran out of great women, but they still had to name it something after hookers because that's their mentality. So. Which, 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 I don't, I mean, for lack of a better term, which, which fight surprised you more that you had to go through in the late 70s and into the middle of the 80s. The the fight about gender or the fight about pay? Oh, I always got paid. I wouldn't work. But that, but that, I mean, that no, fight that I went on in the, in, the late, <laughs> in the late 70s. Yeah. The fight that went on with the Comedy Store strike. You're talking about and, the strike. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a very different question. I mean, that's the not idea my of- fight. That's a comedy fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, you know, the reason we struck, I mean, you know, I don't know if people know, but we just worked seven nights a week for free. And uh, by 79, gas had hit a dollar a gallon. We all had day jobs. Nobody, you know, could just, it was a hobby. I mean, I remember the improv. I worked the door, you know, like from six in the evening till four in the morning for a flat $78 a week, six nights a week. That was insane. I couldn't get a 25 cent raise for the whole two and a half years. That's how bad it was. Well, that's um, from your loyalty with Bud? Not loyalty. <laughs> I needed a job. And no, I, but I mean, he was still oh, only paying you that much. I I, and Andy would beg, give her a 25 cent raise. Never. And of course, the day I quit, he hired my still great friend, Judy Orbach, mm-hmm. and she started at 250 a week. So mm-hmm. that really showed me that people will tr- do to you what you will let them. And if you think you're right, you've got to stand by it because it will eventually pay off for you. So she rolled right in mm-hmm. $78 a week, 250 a week. I know, beyond anything. And I, I think about that. Um, <laughs> but I always make her pick up dinner now. So. Okay. <laughs> um, she can with that. Of course, two fifty a week. Are you kidding me? Um, so, so uh, they had convinced us that it was a hobby and a mm-hmm. college and a place to learn, and we said, "All right." Um, Richard Lewis worked in advertising. Ed Bluestone, you know, his parents supported him. Jay Leno delivered cars from Boston. I stood on my feet for you know five hundred hours a week. Everybody had a job because it paid nothing. By seventy nine to eighty, gas had hit a dollar a gallon, which was huge. Yeah. Uh, and then Mitzi opened Ciro's as the main room of the Comedy Store, a four hundred seat gorgeous club attached to the Comedy Store in the back. And she said, "Okay, now here's the deal: when you work here." At at the Comedy Store main room. Mm-hmm. You must dress like you're in Vegas. No experimenting, no trying out material here. This is Vegas. And she slapped a $10 cover charge on the door. And we looked at each other and said, what are we missing here? <laughs> what are, are you crazy? We need, and so we said to her, Tom Dreesen went to her and said, how about you just add a dollar to the cover charge? And we get, we split the dollar, you know, from, and, and her exact answer, because the first strike meeting was at my house on Sweetser Avenue in LA, not a red cent, not one red cent. And we went, we can't do this. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're living in hell. Some of us would go out to eat and we'd like get one dish at Cantor's, the deli, and split it with the next con. People didn't have money to get a hamburger after work. So we had a strike. Yeah. So that's what happened. And now I love that comics today don't even know that 
We are the reason they get paid. But do you know that if you're really, really good and you work the comedy store, just your little spots at the comedy store in the main room, you can make $4,000 a month now because of what we did. Wow. And nobody knows that. I've, I was at the store the other night, mm-hmm. hanging out, talking to new comics, because, you know, I love hanging out. And they went, yeah, well, you guys didn't fight for us to get paid in the small room. I said, are you insane? <laughs> First of all, the main room was only open on the weekend. So, of course, we had to get paid in the small room. Tom Dreesen, me, half of us were never allowed back in. We never got a penny from the strike we we engineered. You get the money. How dare you not know your history that we did this and didn't get a penny from it? So, anyway. Have you, brought, have you been able to watch any of the Showtime series about it? Oh, let me just say it this way. You I'm know the show Vinyl? Yeah. You know the show Vinyl? Well, my husband is major rock and roll guy. Mm-hmm. When Vinyl came on in the living room, he vomited. <laughs> That's all I can say about watching. No one can watch. He his... vomited watching your show, too? Uh, no. <laughs> no, he pooped. <laughs> no one can watch shows about his or her own profession. I remember when Punchline came out, the movie. Oh, and, right. Yeah. Because everybody talked about the locker room. Yeah, like, where's this locker yeah, room? got lockers. But yeah. here's the interesting thing. So when Punchline came out, I'm mm-hmm. in Central Park uh, walking my dog, and he was beautiful, so people always talked to me. And I uh, started to talk to a policeman, and he said something. Oh, and they all knew me. I was on TV all the time then. I was on Letterman all the time then. Great. Uh, so the cop says, hey, so what do you think of Punchline? I said, oh, my goodness. And I start going off, and he says, hey, 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 just a minute. Do you know how many times a police officer pulls his gun in the line of a 25-year career? I said, how many times? He said, zero! <laughs> but they have to in the movie. But you realize nobody's profession is portrayed correctly. And that's, right. you know, it's drama. You have to make up a story, so. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you talk about how the, the circumstances have changed at the comedy store. And I know here in New York, you can find the same thing going on at the comedy store. You're cellar. talking about getting paid. Getting paid. Yeah. But if you go outside of New York and L.A., the people on the road are still, especially the the MCs and the feature acts, they're still making the same money or getting paid the same amount that they were getting paid in the late 80s. Well, who has said that to you? Plenty of comedians have really? who work the road, yeah. Well, it might be better for headliners, but headliners make a fortune in but, those clubs. But for the MCs and the and the and the middle acts, yeah. Look, anyone they're will still pay. getting paid like fifty bucks a show, and, and that's you have to say I won't do it. I mean, yeah. I had a full when I I would have been an opening act for several years, and I literally worked with every black music group and person in the world because they loved splitting the bill. A black person, a white person, they can draw from everywhere. Mm-hmm. So especially when Atlantic City opened, I mean, don't even I mean, Luke Raw and Natalie Cole and uh, Stephanie uh, God, I'm old Um, I mean everyone in the world Mm -hmm. just, you know, to draw from black and white and um, after like five years I said to myself if I don't stop opening I'm going to be the opening act in show business you know, I will have toured with Sinatra for 50 years so this is not going to work so I declared myself a headliner and pulled back and when people called I would say no, I want to play the room and I didn't make a penny for about a year. I mean, I, people said, no, you're not a headliner, blah, blah, blah. And then luckily the club explosion happened. And I said, well, I can certainly headline little clubs around the right. country. And then I would say, but I need X amount. And they'd go, I can get Paul Provenza for that. And I'd say, <laughs> okay, well, he's great. So use Paul three times. And when you finally need a new face, call me. And I waited a year. And then my phone rang. Okay, we're ready for you. Here's the money. And I said, that was last year's price. <laughs> and I am telling you, <laughs> me and Chuck Berry, we only got screwed once on the mm-hmm. road and it never 
never happened again. So, but I, I feel like for for comedians in the middle, the ones who haven't made it, that it's still an uphill struggle. It will always be an uphill struggle. And what you must do is to become undeniable. The only way to get a career is to get so good that they have to take you. They can't just say, well, we can get so-and-so, and you go, that ain't me, you know. Do you think comedians would ever be able to form a union? No, I don't. After the strike, our dear, dear friend Steve Lubetkin killed himself, right. and so we decided to form a union and have medical and, you know, funds and, you know, everything. And if if losing a good friend by jumping off the building next to the comedy store didn't do it, then I don't think it will ever be done. And it's, you know, it's it's made up of independent misfits comedy. So it's like herding cats. It's never going to happen. Hmm. Yeah. But we what? help each other, which is very good. You know, I mean, there's I have written something, I'll done so much PayPal or, or just donating this you know, GoFundMes. And mm-hmm. I mean, someone had a stroke, someone committed suicide, the fan. There's, I mean, we don't stop giving to each other. It's endless. So that's a good thing. We're, we yeah, are thing, kind of a It's unfortunate that we have to do it that way. Well, I'm sure every profession has to, too. You know, I'm sure people help their friends. But yes, mm-hmm. that's how we do it. We help each other, whoever can. And look, you think my struggles are over? Netflix won't touch me. They have given my dog a special. My barber has a special. The trash man in front of our house has a special. It's now not women. It's now you're over 50. Only men over 50 can have a special. And so some guy on Twitter went, yeah, screw you. You're full of shit. Joan Rivers had a special. I said, I'm wrong. They took one. Oh, they took one. But it wasn't a stand-up special. It was a documentary. Netflix, no thank you. I went, holy (laughs) shit. We're back to Showtime and HBO in the 80s. Can't get a Netflix special. It looks like, I, I mean, people go, what? Why don't you do one? And I go, if they only knew, you know, Netflix, fuck you. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> hey, are we allowed to curse on this thing? Uh, yes. Ah, oh, good. So one other one other way that you were a trailblazer was uh, being the, the first uh, White House Correspondence Dinner performer to be on C-SPAN. I know. They hadn't televised it. And then, you, hadn't. And, then, and then they picked you and it's like, oh, we got to put this on TV. <laughs> You know, I, I I posted it, you know, when the correspondence center mm-hmm. this year, everyone who watched it said the same thing. And even strangers on Twitter, they went, holy, I mean, it's the reason I thought to name the box set Timeless. It's current today. You just change the words, you know, mm-hmm. Bush to uh, ass face. Right. And uh, it's all the same. It's amazing. I mean, I, I did uh, another show the other day and the, the female producer who's probably 25 said, I have to tell you, I listened to the new CD in the box set. I can't believe it. It's so current. But the special, so I played the specials after. Everything is applicable to now. It's like if you just said, these are my new shows, people would think you just recorded these. I said, that's what's sad for America and great for me. You know, the jokes are, I mean, they don't want to outlaw automatic weapons because they say might infringe on some hunting weapons. If you need 100 rounds to kill a deer, maybe hunting isn't your sport. You know, can't you aim with 80 rounds? You need 100 rounds to kill a deer? Can't aim with 80 rounds. Well, remind me never to let you pee at my house. I mean, all the jokes are gun control, politics birth control, try, fighting for choice. Nothing has changed. <laughs> Terrible for America, good for com- for my, my box set. It's, <laughs> it's so wrong. It's so wrong. What was the... Take us back to... Because after uh, after this year, 2018, after Michelle Wolf's performance, people were ta- starting to talk about, well, should we even have comedians do this? And should we even have a White House Correspondence Dinner? Take us back to what it was like 
doing the dinner in 1993 because that was Clinton's first year. <clears throat> Clinton's first year, and so it's always was... the first hundred days report card. And mm-hmm. if you remember, he might have had the worst hundred days in the history of the presidency. Waco, where Janet Reno, you know, blew up a compound and killed a billion kids. Tailhook, the worst. Oh, the Navy scandal. military Navy so that scandal. That was sex abuse. That was total sexual harassment, yeah. sex abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Oh yeah, he swore to the people he'd have his budget passed in the first hundred days. Go away, didn't happen. Hillary, healthcare didn't happen. Mm. It was the worst 100 days ever. And now you're the comedian, right? Mm. Well, I had campaigned a lot for him. And so they knew how much I had worked. And I think that's why they asked me to do it. Um, And they just said, do whatever you want. You know, we trust you. (laughs) And um, so I never hang out before uh, a show, especially that show. You're nervous. You're thinking. You're pacing. And they said, oh, there's a private cocktail party before the dinner. Turns out you have to sit on the dais and eat dinner with them. I never eat before a show. And I certainly can't sit down. They said, no, you must. Because it's the dais is in front Mm -hmm. of everyone at the Watergate. The Watergate. Well, you know, let's go to Auschwitz. Um, (laughs) So And so it's 3,000 people, the press, Congress, Uh you know, everybody. And they said, you have to. And I said, okay, but I'm I'm not going to, in my head, I'm not going to know private cocktail party. Because it's not Gonna, it's going to be a thousand people, right? So I figure, okay, go down for the last ten minutes. I go down. It's us. And Clinton goes, "Where have you been? I wanted Joe to show you his Ross Perot impression. Joe, she finally came. Come here, come here, do Ross Perot, do Ross Perot." And I went, "Oh my God, I missed an hour to hang out with Bill, Hillary, Tipper, Al, and a couple of their writers. I missed the hour. I'm an idiot." Um, but anyway, he would. You know, I, I've met everyone. I've played for the Queen of England. Mm-hmm. I've I've met everyone there is to meet. I have never been starstruck or at a loss or even with Aretha, who I worshipped. I will tell you that this was the only person I saw light coming off of. The man was a total, total rock star, you know. And um, so doing it was, it was great. I mean, I just kept peeking over. He was laughing. And then I saw him. I did one of the jokes. You see it in the in the video. And I realized he didn't hear the punchline because I saw him lean over and say, what? And so he said, oh, uh, and I repeated the punchline. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, I'm so loose. I'm just so conversational. So it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And then I, uh, after the Monica scandal, I entertained uh, Ford's Theater. Again, every year they take the president to a place where a president's been shot and do a special. I think just to remind them. Again, why not Auschwitz? You know, so this could uh, be you. If you... <laughs> I know, I know. So I, uh, we did the show, and I decided, what are you going to do? Because I'm so current. I won't mm-hmm. do something that you know I'm not going to make believe. But I didn't. I thought he had been punished so much, and it was endless. And I said, I'm going to talk about working out at the gym tonight. That's all I want to do. And no one told me I couldn't do anything, mm-hmm. which is great, America. And so I just went up and did a whole routine about working out. And afterwards, he comes down the line thanking everyone. And I look at him and he goes, thank you. And I said, yeah, I left you out of it tonight. (laughs) And he said, and I really appreciate it. There's so much talk, at least these last two years, about the role of comedians when when the world is going to hell. Yeah. Or seems to be going to hell, depending on your view of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the right view of the world is that it's going to hell because of us. And if you don't think so, then you'll you'll feel it soon. Okay. Do you feel feel the comedians have more relevance or have more of a role to play? Or or should they just stick to being funny clowns who are an escape from it? Yeah. Well, you know... uh, 
regardless of what today, what's happening today, mm-hmm. that question has always been, what's the kind of comedy you choose? Right. I mean, there's always been Steve Martin with an hour through his head, and that's brilliant. There's always been Andy who had nothing to do with politics, and that's brilliant. Then you had Carlin and Pryor and Tomlin who do reflect society, you know, day of, and that's brilliant. No one should do anything. What you should do if you're a comedian is what's in you. You have to do the kind of comedy that that you came to do you there's no there's no must there's no should um and there's no dirty it's just funny and there's no wrong it's just funny i mean i had a you know i had eight years at george bush who i thought destroyed the world well he did he knocked down the middle east and we've been in hell ever since and that's what's led to where we are um but i had to play texas a thousand times and you know my for me i'm plugged into it so it was uh, look. The guy was likable. Never attacked George Bush. Attacked every policy. And if you want to argue with me, I can show you in black and white what I'm talking about is correct. You might not like my view of it, but I if it's funny enough. Look, you know, I, I don't mean to cut you off. I I played Tulsa once, and uh, to sell tickets, they let me come on the five o'clock news, and I did my gun control jokes. When I got to the th- because I look, I'm not here to make friends. I'll never mm-hmm. see you again. You know? <laughs> so, so when I got to the theater, the NRA was picketing outside. So I go in, uh-huh. and I'm doing my show, and the audience is great. So I take the mic, and I go to the side door, and I open. And I go, come on in, come on in. And they say, what? I said, come on, come on, enjoy the show. Enjoy the show. See what it's about. And they came in, and uh-huh. I did those jokes, and they realized, oh, she's right about what she's talking about. She's not saying we shouldn't have them. She's saying people who aren't having them for good reasons are misusing them and we need to do something. But do you know I got a full standing ovation from NRA guys and Tulsa, a Jew from New York at the end of that show. And to me, that means you're doing your comedy right. It doesn't mean people didn't get mad or go, whoa, but if they thought about it for a minute, they understood what it was. And that, to me, that's important, not to everyone. Yeah, but to me, I think that's. I mean, I think that's the greatest thing that a comedian can do is get people to look at the world around them differently. Well, you're coming into town and you've read their mail and you're just pointing out things. You know, I would always take the paper up, not a la Mort Saul, but I actually read the paper on stage, their stuff, and I would go through it beforehand and look at their what fairs were coming up, the obituaries. I once played. Oh gosh. Ugh. Uh, Bill will know. Anyway, I never got to a joke in my act. For 90 minutes, I read the paper, and I just kept connecting things. I'm not kidding. It was, gosh, I think it might have been, it was five years ago. It was like towards the Hamptons, but it was a beautiful little 99-seat theater. Mm -hmm. I never got to anything I had ever said before (laughs) in my life. I was enjoying it. Everything in the paper was hilarious, and it all hooked together and it was just beauty it was beautiful uh the beauty of small towns and yeah how they document <laughs> i remember one the sitting... highs and what the highs and lows of life are in a small well town. and also the police blotter in those <laughs> oh. papers oh yeah my when i was a goodness. reporter in smaller papers yeah. we always had fun working the the blotter you know that that is just who left three extra cookies on mrs smith's window when she was only uh you know cooling down a pie i mean it's just great but the best one was i was in some midwestern city and i read what was coming up, mm-hmm. and I just put the paper down and said, ladies and gentlemen, where the hell am I? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they laugh because they know it's outrageous, yeah. so it was a lot of fun. Well, I, I know we've been talking for a while, um, and as you said, 
so many of the things you joked about 25 years ago are still relevant today. 40 years ago. Even 40 years ago. Just a human being trapped in a woman's body? That's 46 years ago. So, you know, having been a uh, survivor of the Me One movement. Yes. And now witnessing the Me Too movement. These are callbacks. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Uh, My favorite thing in comedy. <laughs> What kind of counsel or or sage advice can you have for women and also for the men in the world about how we actually move past this so we don't get to me three and me four? Gee, let's ask black people if things ever change. The fights, the mistake is in thinking that the fights ever end. Anti-Semitism is raising its ugly head everywhere again. Black people are getting shot in the streets with no justice. Women are, you know, it, we, everything gets popular, you know, and gets a little help for a while, and then everything quietly tiptoes back in. And I, I think I truly understand now why Jewish people say, never forget, never forget. It is eternal vigilance, and it won't happen on a countrywide or a worldwide scale because mm -hmm. most people do forget, and businesses just want to make money or run over you or whatever it is, or people want to as well. The thing to do is to know your limits, to know what you can take to know what's healthy for you, and to at least draw a little line where you know you can function, but past this, it's soul-killing and you can't. You have to do that, and sometimes it takes some sacrifice. I do under, I'm not, I know people are saying, oh yeah, white privilege. Mm -hmm. Yes, to a degree there's white privilege, but I had no white privilege when I was 20 years old on the road and club owners were going, well, if you don't sleep with me, you're not going on. I said, I guess I'm not going on. You know, well, how come you don't want to have sex? And, you know, I was smart about it. I didn't say, you've, I would say this. I would say, you know, I have so much respect and love for comedy. I want to make sure when you have me back next year, it's because I was great. And I just can't mix the two. But let me tell you something. If I wasn't doing comedy, boy, would I go out with you in a minute. They loved me because it's it's what you do. And I didn't feel that was a bad thing to have to do. I didn't give an inch. I just made them feel not embarrassed. And I got to do my work. So be smart. You don't have to fight every minute of your life. I didn't fight every minute of my life. I did inside. But people didn't know that I, I had my – you know, I got there before I had to reach that boiling point. Be smart about it. Know what you can take and don't get crushed. And yes, it sounds like white privilege, but it's not. It – I – ate every piece of God. I mean, look, Phyllis Diller, when I, she was so good to me and everyone, men and women comics. She was just the love of the world. And I'm sitting with her in her house one day and she says, I said, okay, now I'm in the hard part. It's so hard to keep going through all this crap. You know, right. how did you do it? And this is what she said. And I just told this to Eliza Schlesinger because we were comparing notes in the car. I drove her home and Phyllis said, well, every morning for breakfast, I take a teaspoonful of shit lest I forget the taste. So now Eliza and I think mm -hmm. like that, and we understand. Look, you know, you, everyone thinks, "Wow, you're a you're a legend. You made it." And then Netflix goes, "Yeah, go fuck yourself." It never ends. It's never going to change. Okay, so what do I do? I know my limits. I know my stress. I don't mean limits because mm -hmm. I don't think I have limits, but I know what I can take and what I can't. I'm too old to get my soul crushed for another year. You don't want me? Fine. Don't have me. And that's it. I don't care. You know, that's the box set will take care of that. 
and you do what you can. But just, you know, get as good as you can. And don't my real advice to comedians is take no advice. Don't listen to anyone. Because when I started out, everyone came to me and said, this can't work. You can't be pretty. You have to like, you know, stop putting on makeup mm -hmm. and don't. And I said, yeah, well, thank you. I just I was 20. I was really cute and sexy. And I just wanted to be smart and attractive, you know, just like rock stars. And I didn't listen. And you know what you want. You know what you can do. Do not let people change you. Stand there. Do it. You know, I remember watching Gilbert Gottfried. We all started together in 72, 73. And of course, every night, just the roof came off the club. And I, I remember someone else who was a little jealous. A comedian came up and said, yeah, but where's he going? And I said, he don't have to go nowhere. <laughs> They're going to come to him. And that's what happens. Just to be your best. And never let them see you sweat. And never let them see <laughs> except in New York this week. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Elaine Boozler, thank you so much. Thank you for sitting down with me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.